Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Happy Mother's Day to everyone. In Scripture, there are two important days that we need to be aware of and that we need to be prepared for. Two specific, two particular days mentioned in Scripture more than once mentioned in Scripture that we need to be aware of and that we need to be prepared for. The first is known as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And the second is called the day of Christ. The day of the Lord and the day of Christ. And they are two separate events. Uh, They are two distinctly different days or periods of time in Scripture. The day of the Lord is also known as that day. It's called that day. Or it's called the great and the terrible day of the Lord. Or it's called the day of God's wrath. Several different names, but uh, usually referred to as the day of the Lord or that day. is spoken of by eight of the Old Testament prophets. And if you look in your sermon notes, you will see uh, the passages where the day of the Lord or those other uh, allusions to it are mentioned. It's also mentioned by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. The bulk of that chapter is dealing with the day of the Lord. It's mentioned by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 and 2 Peter chapter 3. It's mentioned by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it's mentioned by the Apostle John in the book of the Revelation, chapters 6 through 19. The day of the Lord. It is a time when God's wrath is poured out on a nation or on nations. On a nation or on nations. It's a period of judgment when God purges the land of the evil and wicked and sinful people. It is a time when the peoples of the earth, particularly those that are receiving this judgment, weep and mourn over their sinful rebellion against God and against the things of God. Now, the first instance where this is mentioned by that name is in the book of Isaiah. But there have been several days previous to uh, Isaiah's prophecy regarding the day of the Lord. And one that I think of particularly is found in Genesis, the great flood in the days of Noah, where God's wrath was poured out upon the sinfulness of mankind And the earth was um, drowned in a flood of water where all creatures and, uh, and all human beings were destroyed by the flood except those that were in the ark that Noah and his sons built. It's not called the day of the Lord, but it is very characteristic of the day of the Lord. Primarily, primarily the day of the Lord has to do with the nation of Israel. It has to do with the Jewish people. Because in the prophecies of the Old Testament, whenever the the day of the Lord is mentioned, it is God pouring out His judgment upon His own people for their sinfulness, for their wickedness, for their rebellion against Him. And so, the day of the Lord is primarily a time when God punishes His chosen People. In Isaiah chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, just listen as I read it. A sound of the tumult on the mountain, like that of many people. A sound of the uproar of kingdoms, of nations, gathering together. 
The Lord of hosts is mustering an army for battle. They are coming from a far country, from the furthest horizons. The Lord and his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all the hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. This is Isaiah telling the children of Israel that because of their sin and rebellion against the Lord God, he is raising up an army from a distant nation that will march toward Israel and God will give them the permission to conquer the land of Israel because of the rebellion of the people. And so this is descriptive uh, of the day of the Lord. Isaiah is prophesying the day of the Lord is coming, O Israel, when God has had enough and God is going to punish you. He's going to send his judgment upon you for your sin and your rebellion. In Joel chapter 1 verses 14 and 15, the prophet Joel uh, pretty much describes the same thing. Uh, the day of the Lord. He says, Consecrate a, fa a fast and proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as a destruction from the Almighty. The day of the Lord. Of course, there are many other passages uh, that I could have read, but you get the picture. The day of the Lord is a day of terror for those who have no regard for God or for the things of God. But it's also a time of great blessing upon those who love the Lord, upon those who walk in obedience to his word. The same prophet Joel who described the coming day of the Lord as a day of terror also says in chapter 2 verses 28 through 31, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the awesome day of the Lord. So not only is the day of the Lord a time of trouble, a time of pain, a time of sorrow. It is also a time of joy for those who love the Lord and those who have committed their life to Him and who are living in obedience to Him. It is a day of celebration for them. For now, the land will be rid of the evil that plagues them. The land will be rid of the sin that oppresses them. It's a day of terror for the sinner. It is a day of rejoicing for the saint. And we know three such times three such periods, three such days of the Lord in the history of Israel in the Old Testament. In 722 BC, 722 years before Christ, the Lord allowed Assyria, Assyria, to conquer the northern ten tribes of Israel. I want you to look in 2 Kings. Turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. And I want you to look in chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. Second Kings chapter 17, verses 13 through 18. This is the announcement of the day of the Lord upon the northern tribes, the northern ten tribes of Israel. Second Kings 17, beginning in verse 13. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah. Israel is the northern ten tribes, Judah the southern two tribes. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I command your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen. 
but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant which he made with their fathers and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity, that is, emptiness. They followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them. That means that they started practicing the evil things that the pagan nations around them were practicing. They went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. And they forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of the heaven and served Baal. They made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire, that is, the idol that was erected out in the valley of Hinnom, the idol Moloch, uh, that uh, moms and dads would take their infant children and roast their infant children alive on this pagan god. They made their sons and daughters pass through the fire and practice divination and enchantments, sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. The last one, verse 18, So the Lord was very angry with Israel, removed them from his sight, None was left except the tribe of Judah. So in 722 to 721, the Lord God allowed the nation of Assyria to march upon the northern ten tribes and utterly destroyed them for their sin and their rebellion against him. Later on, in 607 B.C., 607 years before the days of Christ. The Lord allowed Babylon to begin its conquest of the southern two tribes of Judah for the same reasons that he sent judgment upon the northern ten tribes. That conquest was completed in 587 B.C. In 2 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 19 and verse 20, also, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. The northern ten tribes, destroyed by God, for their sin and their evil and their wicked practices. And he had warned Judah, the southern two tribes, of the same day that would come upon them. And yet, almost a hundred years later, Judah paid no mind. People of Israel thought nothing of it. They were more concerned about their own particular lives and doing their own thing and living the way that they wanted to live, practicing what they wanted to practice, loving what they wanted to love, becoming what they wanted to become, with no regard for God, with no regard for the things of God, until the prophets came and announced the same judgment upon Judah. In, 580, in 537... You see, well, let me just back up. The northern ten tribes were completely destroyed. And the peoples there either migrated down into Judah territory or they were scattered to the wind. But the vast majority of them were killed in the conquest of Assyria. In 587 B.C., a lot of the Hebrew people were taken captive to Babylon. Thousands of them were killed in the Babylonian conquest of Judah. Some of them scattered to the four winds as well. But thousands of them went into captivity into the land of Babylon. Babylon was then conquered by Medo-Persia. And then the Persians reigned over 
the, the region until King Cyrus in 537 BC, 537 years before Christ, King Cyrus decreed that the Jews could return from captivity to their homelands in Palestine. They could rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. And so they were set free to go back home. Many of them did. More of them did not. Many of them stayed in Persia. Many of them went into other lands. But there were those that did come back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Fast forward a number of years, several hundred years, and in the days of Jesus, you find the Jews are occupying Palestine in two separate regions. The first region is the northern part where the ten tribes used to dwell. That's called Galilee in the days of Jesus. And then you have the southern part of the the nation, uh, which is called Judah, where the former Judah and Benjamin dwelt uh, before the conquest. So you have Galilee to the north and Judea to the south. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the redeemer, to be the Messiah of the Hebrew people. But rather than accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they rejected him and they crucified him. And because they rejected him and crucified him, God allowed Rome to completely destroy Jerusalem and the temple, to slaughter tens of thousands of families, and to scatter the survivors to the nations of the world. And that happened in A.D. 70, another day of the Lord. But there remains yet one final day of the Lord when God will finally and completely destroy the universe, purging it from all vestiges of sin and evil and wickedness. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12, the Apostle Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt within intense heat. Now I know that for a lot of people, when we talk about the judgments of God and and the wrath of God, people will say, well, that's Old Testament stuff. That's the Old Testament God. That's not the New Testament God. Well, I just read the passage from Second Peter, which is in the New Testament. And the Apostle Peter, which was the spokesman of all of the disciples of Jesus Christ, speaks of a coming day when the day of the Lord will once again be revealed. And the wrath of God will be poured out upon the earth because we fail to learn from history. Israel failed to learn from its history, and we failed to learn from our own history. God is righteous and God is holy, and God will be patient with us until such a time, he says, enough is enough, and then his judgment will be poured out upon the earth once again. So it is a horrible day, a terrible time, When God dispenses his anger toward those who are evil and wicked and unrepentant. On the other hand, the day of Christ is mentioned by the Apostle Paul only. You do not find any mention of the day of Christ in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in the Gospels. It is mentioned by the Apostle Paul only. He wrote about the day of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in Philippians chapter 1 and 2. And also in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and chapter 4. The day of Christ. 
I want us to turn to Philippians, if you will, please. Chapter 1, where we've been for the last several Sundays. And I want us to see how the Apostle Paul mentions the day of the Lord. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, look at verse 6, if you will. The Apostle Paul writes, For I am confident of this very thing, that he, speaking of God, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. A specific day, a specific time, a specific period when he will perfect What God has begun in your life, if you're a Christian, what God has begun in your life the day that you were saved, we are are in the processes of maturing and growing spiritually um, uh, mature and uh, in our understanding of the things of God, but there is coming a day when that will be made complete. And the Apostle Paul says that is the day of Christ Jesus. Look at verses 9 and 10. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Again, he's talking about those elements, those principles that are involved in growing spiritually mature. And that will continue on, the Apostle Paul says, until the day of Christ. Until the day of Christ. In chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, look at verses 12 through 16. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice he doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. Put your salvation to practical good use in your life so that you can grow, you can mature in the Lord. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, in the day of Christ, I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain." The day of Christ is not a day of terror because it's not a day of judgment. It is not a day of horror and pain and sorrow because it is not a period of time when God pours out his wrath or even Christ himself pours out his wrath upon the earth. The day of Christ is that moment when all who have believed in Jesus Christ and received him as Lord and Savior, will be perfected in his salvation, and his salvation will be perfected in them. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I want you to look at that. So turn right just a few pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul describes this day of Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. The apostle writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, that shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Paul is describing the day of the Lord. It's when Christ Jesus comes from glory and he calls his people home to be with him. If it happens to be today and we hear the trumpet sound and we see the Lord coming in the clouds of glory, then those who have died in Christ Jesus, my mother, your mother, many of us whose mothers have died, our fathers have died as Christians, they will rise up from their graves. They will be resurrected as Jesus was resurrected. They will be clothed in a glorified eternal body as Jesus was clothed in a glorified eternal body. And they will rise up to meet the Lord in the air. And those who are alive, who are Christian, who are longing for the day of the Lord to appear, who are longing for Christ to come and and take us home, we will be caught up in the air, immediately transformed from this body of flesh into a body of eternal glory, and we will meet him in the air with all of the saints and go on to be with him in glory. That is the day of of Christ. It is the day of Christ. So as the day of the Lord is a day of terror and a day when God's wrath will be poured out upon all who have rejected him, who live in sin and in rebellion against him, the day of Christ is a day of joy and rejoicing, a day when those who love the Lord Jesus Christ and who have sought to serve him in this life and to minister to others in his name who've longed for his appearing with a faithful heart and with a serving spirit. Those are the ones who will rejoice when the day of Christ comes. Now, what does that have to do with Philippians 1, 9 through 11? Well, you've been patient. Be patient still. In view of these things, the Apostle Peter asks a question. In the passage that I read earlier in 2 Peter, the Apostle Peter asks a question and he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, the day of the Lord, since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Let me put it in terms that we can understand. Since the Bible tells us that there is coming a day when Jesus Christ will split the skies, when the trumpet of the Lord will sound, when the dead in Christ will rise up from their graves in glorified bodies, when all the saints of the Lord who are alive will be immediately transformed into glorified bodies and be caught up in the air with the Lord to go on into glory. Since that day is coming, and I don't know when that day is coming, and no man knows when that day is coming, but it is coming. And since that day is coming, what kind of life should you be living? What kind of life should you be living? How should you be conducting yourself as a Christian in a world that is godless, in a culture that is antichrist? How should you be living? And since we know the day of the Lord is also coming, for those who do not know Jesus Christ, who've never embraced him as Lord and Savior, for those who have no regard for the things of God, when the day of judgment does come, Are you going to be ready for it? How should you be living? How should you be conducting yourself? The Apostle Peter asks the question. It's a question that all of us need to answer. We need to consider it seriously and we need to answer it. Well, Paul gives us the answer in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. So we'll go there. And we will just simply answer the question. Notice again the the prayer of the Apostle Paul in verses 9, 10, and 11. 
And again, there are seven principles, there are seven elements that are important, that are vital, that are necessary. If you are a Christian, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, these seven principles you need to be practicing in your life on a daily basis so that spiritual maturity may be yours. You may continue each day growing in the Lord, more mature today than you were yesterday, more mature tomorrow than you are today. And he writes in verses 9, 10, and 11, And this I say, this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Now notice this, just think with the Apostle Paul here. That we may live in such a way that our love may abound still more and more in real knowledge, discernment, so that we can approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless, looking forward to the day of Christ. These are the things that we, we need to be doing now because we know that the day of Christ is coming. And again, we don't know if it's today or tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. Or the next generation. We do not know. So we need to be practicing these things every single day. Amen? Amen? But then he goes on to say, Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And what he's saying here in that part of this prayer is, When the day of Christ does come, and we're caught up, to be with the Lord in His appearing, we can look back on our lives and we can be satisfied that we have lived our lives filled with the fruit of righteousness because these are the things that lead to a mature spiritual Christian who lives a life of righteousness. So there is a looking forward to the day of Christ and when that comes, there is a looking back on the life that we lived in light of the coming of Christ. So we need to be growing spiritually mature through an ever-increasing love for Jesus Christ, for each other, and for those who do not know Jesus Christ, those who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to increase in our knowledge of God and of the things of God. We need to increase in our knowledge of the Word of God and the plan and the purposes and the will of God in our own lives. And then we also need to make a sincere and honest effort to apply the truth of God into our lives so that we can live a spiritually powerful life, a life that's pleasing to the Lord and productive in His work. Those are the first three principles that we've discussed over the last three Sundays. This morning, the fourth principle, that is to approve what is excellent. Notice again in Philippians chapter 1, verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. What does that mean? When you read that text, what, what do you think the Apostle Paul is getting at when he says that we need to have an, an abounding love, we need to have uh, uh, a, a, a real knowledge, uh, a thorough knowledge of the things of God, we need to uh, be able to apply those things into our life through a discerning spirit, and then we need to approve the things that are excellent. Well, the word approve means to examine. It means to test. It comes from the marketplace where merchants and customers would test materials and produce to determine their quality, to determine their purity. To approve means to test, to to see if it's the real McCoy, to test its genuineness, to prove its genuineness, to prove what the merchant says the product really is. In Luke chapter 12, verse 56, Jesus used the term when he rebuked the Jewish people for their ability to analyze the things of the earth and of the sky, but they could not analyze the signs of the times. 
In Luke chapter 14 and verse 19, Jesus used the term in rebuking the Jewish people for their foolish excuses for rejecting him as Messiah. Like a farmer who would foolishly buy five teams of oxen for use on the farm without proving them, without testing them to see if they were strong, sturdy, healthy, and able to work on the farm. To test, to prove. And then you have the word excellent. What is excellent? It means to differentiate between. To differentiate between. To determine which is of greater or lesser value. Y'all remember way back when, I, I don't know if it was the Montgomery Ward catalog or the Sears catalog, but way back when, when I was a child, uh, in a lot of the products in one of those catalogs, uh, you, could, you could buy, um, you had a choice. You could buy what was good, you could buy what was better, you could buy what was best. You remember that? I remember that. Where have y'all been? It was the same product... But one was the lower end of the scale and certainly cheaper. Then you had the same product that was a bit more expensive and supposedly better quality. And then you had what was best, the higher dollar value, and it was supposed to be the top of the line as the product. What was good, what was better, what was best. That's what the apostle means here by proving uh, excellence or by... uh, approving those things that are excellent, to test them, to analyze the difference between what is good and what is best. What is good and what is best. And it's important to remember that. To approve the things that are excellent means to identify, to assess, and to prove what is the best, the most important, and the most crucial in your Christian life. You know, you can do a lot of things that are good. Right? But you know what? Some of us, that's what we settle for. We settle for doing just what's good. When our Lord gives us abilities, talents, knowledge, wisdom, His Holy Spirit, gifts, and so on and so forth, so that we will not do just what is good, we will press on to do what is excellent. We will give the Lord God our best and not just what we think is good. I remember when I went to seminary many, many years ago, my Old Testament professor had over his door this placard, and I'll never forget it. This placard, uh, on this placard was written, your life is God's gift to you. What you make of it is your gift to God. And I believe that most Christians, most sincere Christians, want to give to the Lord the gift of excellence. Being all that we can be in Christ Jesus to present to Him our gift of life in an excellent fashion, in an excellent way. Now, to assess the things that are excellent is not a spiritual gift. It is not a spiritual gift like wisdom or knowledge or any of a number of spiritual gifts that are mentioned in Scripture. This is not a spiritual gift. It is a holy application of God's truth into your life. And that means, brothers and sisters, that as Christians, we are to roll up our sleeves and we are, put our, we are to put ourselves to work in the kingdom of God so that we can present to the Lord not something that is just good or acceptable, but something that is excellent. What service do I serve in the kingdom of God that I can present to Him as being excellent? If God has called you to service, are you giving Him the best that you can give Him? Are you proving all of the things that come into your life to see if that's just good or mediocre or if those are the things that will help you to present to the Lord an excellent sacrifice in life. So through the knowledge of God's Word, 
through the application of his word in our lives, we're able to know what is right and what is wrong. We're able to understand what is godly and what is ungodly. And dearly beloved, that's basic and that's fundamental. That's basic and fundamental. Every Christian should know what is right and what is wrong. Every Christian should know what is godly and what is ungodly. That is basic and that is fundamental. That's the ground level floor in spiritual maturity. And yet I know far too many Christians who struggle with that. They cannot discern between what is right and what is wrong. They can't discern between what is godly and what is ungodly. And they are confused by what's going on in our culture. And they can't decide if what they hear and what they see and what they're experiencing is what God wants them to have or to experience or not. Beloved, we need to know God's Word and apply God's Word to the extent when something goes on, when something happens, when we hear something, when we see something, we will know immediately that's of God. And that's not. And why it is so important for us if we cannot discern the basic fundamentals, no wonder our lives are weak. No wonder our lives are not presenting anything exceptional to the kingdom of God. So the maturing Christian needs to be approving what is excellent so that they can distinguish between the things of God and the things of self or the things of men. For instance, how do I know if what I feel in my spirit is the will of God or if that's my own will? Or if that's somebody else's will. Better yet, is the voice that I'm hearing in my heart the voice of God? Or is it my own voice? Or is it the voice of someone else? And I've had people ask me this question. When I'm in prayer, when I am praying, and I, I hear in, inside, I hear in my consciousness a, a response, how do I know that, that I'm not just speaking to myself? How do I know that this is not uh, something that my mother used to say or my father or my best friend used to say? How do I know it's really the voice of God? A spiritually mature Christian will know if it's the voice of God. Discerning the will of God versus the will of man or versus my own will. Discerning the voice of God or the voice of myself or the voice of someone else. To know and to understand the purpose of, of God in situations and in circumstances in life. The maturing Christian needs to know that. But a maturing Christian won't get there without an overabounding love for the Lord God, without a knowledge of His Word, without uh, testing those things and applying those things into His life, you'll never get there. You'll continue to struggle with that until you either die or the Lord comes and gets you. So in closing, the Apostle Paul wrote to these Philippians to encourage them to press on. Don't stop where you're at. Don't think that you have arrived because you haven't in the kingdom of God. Press on today, and then if tomorrow comes, press on tomorrow. To know more and more about God and His will and His ways. To understand more and more of the kingdom of God and its application into your life. Put those things to the test in your life and prove them to be genuine and true and solid and pure and righteous and holy. A Christian who is mastering the art of approving what is excellent will be able, listen, and, here, and here's where it really comes down to. The maturing Christian will be able to see and understand the signs of the times. Friends, do you know what time we're living in? Can you read the signs 
of the times that we're living in? Do you know that this is the last hour? Are you aware of the fact that we are in the last days prior to the coming of Christ? Do you see, because of what's going on in our culture, not just in the American culture, but in the European culture, in the Asian culture, in the African culture, in all of the other cultures of all of the peoples of the earth, do you see what is going on and can you understand how all of these things are fitting together? And they fit the pattern that God has given to us in His Word that indicate those days are the days of Christ. Those are the days directly preceding the coming of Christ. We're in those days. We're in those days. But there are far too many Christians who don't believe it. There are far too many Christians who don't understand it because they can't see it. They just don't know how to read the signs of the times. They don't understand that these are the days of the coming of the Lord. They don't see and they don't understand the powers that control the nations and the leaders of the nations and even the spirit that controls those that are around them. That's why we've got to wake up. It's why we've got to put the words of the Apostle Paul to the test in our own lives. We've got to be approving what is excellent so that as we spiritually mature, we can begin to realize these things all around us. Titus chapter 2, and I'll close. Titus chapter 2, and I want you to turn there and I want you to look at it. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So it's close to the, well, it's to the right of Philippians. <clears throat> and it's before you get to the book of Hebrews. And for the rest of you, it's somewhere in the New Testament. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Let's go to verse 10, and we'll read through verse 14. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, those who are Jews, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of them... Good grief. That's chapter 1. Well, hey, it applies. I mean, if you're reading chapter 1, verse 10, you're reading today's newspaper. Chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. Speaking of Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared. Christ has come. Bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possessions, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. This is the kind of life that we must be living because the one who has come and won our salvation upon the cross is coming again. And he desires for each and every one of them who knows him as Lord and Savior, live this kind of life so that when he comes, we will be ready and we will be willing and we will be wanting to go with him to glory. Stand with me if you will, please. David, come and prepare us to sing a song as we dismiss.
y'all to have a great Mother's Day today. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for our time together. May your word sink deep within our heart that we might live for Jesus Christ who died and rose again and is coming again for us. In his holy name I pray. Amen and amen. God bless you and have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on Him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to Him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.